may be seated. When you are, please open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 12. We're continuing our journey through the book of Romans. Now we are in the last third of the book. And Paul has made a transition here. He's beginning to talk about what the Christian life ought to look like, what our experience is, where we are maybe, and where we need to be. And that, of course, will be a little different for all of us, right? Because we're all at different ages and places in life. So our sermon text is Romans 12, 9 through 21. What we're going to do is read the whole chapter, though, because that'll give you the context of what Paul's talking about, number one. And number two, it'll remind you of the text and what we heard about last time. You might remember that um, he talked about um, thinking rightly about yourself and your fellow believers and your gifts. Um, We're called, of course, to use the gifts that God has given us, and that applies directly, as you'll see. So let's read uh, Romans chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. This is God's inspired word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing love or showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that you would help us with this text. Lord, you say so very much in it. You give us so much direction. And Lord, you know that each of us, again, are in a different place in life. I mean, your word applies different to us. Lord, we would ask that you would be doing a work by your spirit. You would come, that you would take this one word preached and that you would apply it to each. Lord, would you search our minds, search our hearts, search our lives, and would you show us how this word applies to our lives and what you would have us to do. Lord, make your presence known to us, we pray. We'd ask this for Christ's sake, for for his honor, for his glory, and we'd ask it in his name. Amen. Well, no doubt, um, most all of you are familiar with Helen Keller. And if you are familiar with Helen Keller, then you know uh, that she lost both her sight and her hearing when she was around 18 months old. She became deaf and blind, and she was, of course, severely limited in her ability to communicate with anybody in the outside world. But a teacher named Anne Sullivan entered Helen's life when she was about seven years old, and Anne began to spell things in um, Helen's hand. And through that, she was able to teach Helen language and communication. And this was a massive breakthrough uh, for Helen. She was enabled to understand the concept of words and communication. With Anna's help, Helen learned to read and to write and even to speak. Eventually, Helen earned a Bachelor of Arts degree and became a famous author and speaker and an advocate for those with disabilities. You see, with her mind renewed, Helen was able to flourish and interact with others around her. And we see Something similar in our text. In verse two, Paul said that believers need to have their minds renewed by the word of God. Like Helen, we need to learn. We need to learn. And in our text, we see that Paul wants us to learn to love like Jesus loves. So he gives us instructions. For instance, he wants our love to be genuine. You see that right away. In verse 9, in the opening words of our text, this passage is about love. This passage tells you how to love the Lord, your fellow believers, and even your enemies. But to love others with a Christ-like love, you need to love the Lord, who is the ultimate source of love. So that's where we're going to begin. Reflect Christ-like love for the Lord. That's our first heading. Reflect Christ-like love for the Lord. And you see that Paul wastes no time. He gives us instructions immediately. In verse 9, he writes, let love be genuine. In verse um, 9, he says, let love be genuine. And that Uh, word there, love, is the word agape 
from the original Greek text. Agape is a unique and significant term in the New Testament because it describes a particular kind of love. It's often described as an unconditional or self-sacrificial or selfless love. It goes beyond mere emotional affection. It's characterized by a deliberate act of will to seek the well-being and good of others. Agape love isn't dependent on the worthiness or likability of the recipient. And see, this is where it starts to get difficult, right? It does. Agape love chooses to love regardless of the circumstances. It's the highest form of love. It's loving like God loves. And you can see that because you can see that this is you know, we use that term countercultural. This is counterintuitive to what we often feel in our hearts. Agape love chooses to love regardless of circumstances. It's the kind of love that believers are called to have for God and others. So, what does the Bible say about love? says in verse nine, let your love be genuine. It's urging you to express a love that's authentic and free from hypocrisy. This word hypocrisy is the word they use for acting. Don't just like uh, act like you love. You say, yeah, well, I know what God wants me to do, so I'll, I'll act like I love. No, it's a call to love from the heart. Your love should stem from a genuine heart with sincere intentions. How do we do that? The rest of verse nine begins to give you an answer. Look what it says. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. You see, you're supposed to abhor evil. When Paul says to abhor evil, he's using the strongest word for hate found anywhere in the Bible. The word doesn't imply a mild displeasure or dislike. I mean, that's the way we feel about, I mean, some sins we despise and hate. Maybe we even feel self-righteous about hating it so much. But we're to hate all sin. We're to hate all sin. Again, the word doesn't imply a, a mild displeasure or dislike. The Bible is commanding you to hate evil. It's commanding you to hate sin. And it's not like it's just the Bible. This is God's word. This is God talking. He's the one that says, people, my people, children, hate sin. And just as you are to despise evil, what does he say? He says, hold fast to what's good. The term hold fast is the root for the um, the same root that is for the Greek word for glue. Uh, you're to cling to what is good. You're to be attached to it. You're to allow what is true and good and biblical to become part of your soul, to become part of you. Well, you might ask, how, how am I supposed to do this? You haven't exactly started by keeping the bar low. We're setting it very high, right? Away. Agape love, hating 
all forms of sin? Where am I supposed to get the strength? Where am I supposed to get the will? What about this heart of mine? I don't seem to care much of the time. Those are great questions to ask because we're not talking about love that is produced by the power of the will. The Christian life of love is a supernatural life. Do you believe it? The supernatural. That's crucial for you to admit that the Christian life is a supernatural life. It's humbling. For instance, left to yourself, you can't love the way the Bible tells you to love. If you could, love wouldn't be a fruit of the Spirit. But it is. If you could just do it on your own, it would be a fruit of, love would be a fruit of your personality or your upbringing. No, God works in a supernatural way to help you bear the fruit of love and to grow in sanctification, to grow in Christ-likeness. Christian, you need, you need to pray. God will give you his grace and the Holy Spirit when you depend on him. Do you think you really need him to do this? Do you think you really need him in your life? Pray. A prayerless Christian is a powerless Christian. Do you feel powerless? What does your prayer life look like? I mean, you don't have to tell me. Be honest with yourself. What does it look like? Pray, ask God to change you, to empower you, to change your heart, your will, your desire, to help you hate sin and to love him, to truly love him. The Lord wants you to love him. Consider verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Have you ever used one of those color Pantone sheets? You know, you're wanting to uh, repaint something and you need to know what the color of uh, the room is. So you go up with the Pantone sheet and you try uh, to figure out what color it is so you know what color to go and buy. Well, this verse can work like that. You can hold it up to yourself and see how it matches. What, What does my life look like? Well, Paul says, It's not supposed to be slothful in zeal, not cold or indifferent. It doesn't lack enthusiasm for him or for his people or for the things of God. Instead, your love for the Lord should demonstrate enthusiasm and zeal by pursuing a close relationship with him. You know how it is when you and maybe you move away and you're no longer talking to an old friend. You used to be one of your best friends, but you just don't talk as much anymore. It's like you're still friends, but you're just not that close. Uh, it just happens. To be close with someone, you need to be in contact. Well, how does God speak to you? He speaks to you through the preaching of the word and through reading his word. And you speak to him through prayer and through ongoing walking before him. 
all the day. And by being and doing that, him talking to you and you talking to him, you have a closeness. You know that this is true. You've experienced this in your life with your friends. The same is true here. Paul says you're to be fervent in spirit. In spirit. Your love for the Lord should be marked by an inner passion and fervor that goes beyond mere external actions. You should pray for a deep, heartfelt connection with God where the fire of devotion burns brightly in your spirit. What will that result in? In verse 11, you see that your love for the Lord should find expression in practical service. So serve the Lord, right? Serving the Lord involves utilizing your time and your talents and your resources to contribute to the work of God's kingdom. Think about the context of this chapter. What did it say in verses three through eight? Right, each of us has been given different gifts to serve the Lord. And here it is, it says serve, use those gifts. Serve the Lord, serve the church with those gifts. Sometimes we find ourselves, if we're being honest, right, we find ourselves uh, distracted. We find ourselves off track. Maybe we would say in a funk. Something's wrong, we've compared ourselves to the Pantone sheet and it doesn't match. How do we get back on track? Well, verse 12 gives us direction. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Rejoice in hope. Find joy and confidence in the hope you have in Christ. Keep your focus on the promises of God, trusting in his faithfulness. This is about having an eternal perspective. Rejoice in hope. What is your hope? What are those promises that God has given you? Have an eternal perspective. Focus on the gospel and on Christ and on all those promises that he has given you. And be patient in tribulation. This text is promising difficulties. We will face difficulties. But God is encouraging you to approach tribulations with patience, recognizing that his timing and his purposes transcend. They transcend immediate circumstances. Take your concerns to God in prayer. This is what he's telling you. Take them to me in prayer. Seek his guidance, seek his strength, seek his comfort. Be constant in prayer. We talked about this. Maintain a continuous connection with God through prayer. Do it when you wake up in the morning. Say, good morning. I mean it. When you get out of the shower, when you're getting in your car, when you're getting ready for work, every time you're about to tackle a new project, when you're going to drive home, stay connected. Talk to God. He's your friend. He's your father. Be connected to him. Be constant in prayer. Your love for God shapes your devotion 
to him and it naturally extends to your relationships within the body of Christ. And that leads us to our second heading. Reflect Christ-like love for the church. Reflect Christ-like love for the church. Family members go out of their way for one another, don't they? Um, I remember I had a family member who needed help with a move. And this family member uh, lived in another state and they were moving from one state to another state and they had uh, a large house and they needed help with everything. They needed help with packing, they needed help with loading. Uh, They even needed help driving the moving truck from one state to the other state. And you know what happened when we got to the other state? They needed help unloading the truck. It was uh, hard work. This project took days, but it wasn't a burden. Why? Love. Love. When you love someone, you're willing to sacrifice and to go out of your way for them. This is the kind of love our text is calling Christians to have for one another. Draw your attention to verse 10. Paul says, love one another with brotherly affection. And then look, outdo one another in showing honor. Paul uses a a different word for love here in the uh, original Greek text. He uses a word that combines the word for friendship love and family love. Uh, The church is more than friends. We are, we are more than acquaintances. We are family, really and truly. Spiritually, we are family. The scripture says that we have been adopted into God's family. Romans 8.15, Galatians 5.5. We share the family name. The love we have for one another in the church is to be the same kind of love that you experience in a good family. Affection, tenderness, kindness, concern, the willingness to tell one another the truth, the willingness to confide in one another, loyalty, devotion, commitment, being there for one another, patience, understanding. Paul says love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo translates a Greek word which normally means take the lead. Don't wait for others to go first. No. You're to show the way or or to take the lead in honoring. This is like Philippians 2.3 which says, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. It's a call to humility. It's a call to be kind and considerate of others, to honor others. This is the servant of a heart. This is the the heart of a Christian. This is the heart of Christ. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
This isn't always easy, though, is it? Some, some people are tough. Some people are tough to love. Maybe that's why Paul says to be fervent in zeal and to focus on serving the Lord. And maybe that's why he reminds us to be patient in tribulation and constant in prayer. Again, the Christian life of love is a supernatural life. We can't love the way the Bible tells us to love without the power of the Spirit. But enabled by God, you can do things you never imagined possible, things that now seem out of reach. You can love the church in the ways that Paul describes in verse 13. Consider what he says. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You see, love is generous. It helps those in need. When you meet the need of someone who is vulnerable and who is in real need, your, your lives touch in a special way, in a unique way. You grow closer and you develop a special bond with that person. Another way to meet someone's need through hospitality is by providing an opportunity to build friendship. Oftentimes we think of hospitality as providing someone with a meal or, or maybe a place to stay. But we can use hospitality to build friendships. We need one another. We need friendship. We need to laugh. We need to cry sometimes. We need to know we're not alone. We need fellowship. We need encouragement. And regularly, Hospitality provides an opportunity to serve one another and it can create a loving bond between people. And it provides the opportunity for us to share with one another, to confide in one another, to pray for one another. This is how God would have us love each other. He wants us to come alongside one another. Consider what Paul writes in verse 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This directive captures the essence of empathy and solidarity that should be found within the body of Christ. To rejoice with those who rejoice means actively sharing in the joys and the celebrations of fellow believers. No envy, no jealousy, This is a call for genuine enthusiasm and support when others experience success or blessings or moments of happiness. On the other hand, we're called to weep with those who weep. We're called to show compassion and empathy during times of sorrow and grief and hardship. But it can be very difficult to come along someone, alongside someone who's suffering. It's hard. You don't know what to do. You don't know what you're supposed to say. We can have the false impression that when we arrive, we need to make some sort of speech, some speech that's going to take the tears away from the person and just change everything for them. 
You don't have to say anything. Just be there. And if they cry, you weep with them. This is the kind of love we should expect within a close-knit community of believers. But Paul challenges us to embrace a love that even transcends that, that reaches even those who oppose or mistreat us. We see that in our third heading, reflect Christ-like love for the opposition. Reflect Christ-like love for the opposition. I don't know about you, but, but by God's grace, I haven't um, faced much persecution. Sometimes when we think about persecution, we tend to think about a government clampdowns or, or maybe a violent mob. But sometimes persecution comes in other forms. And as I thought about my life and the persecution that I've experienced, uh, two instances came to mind. mind. One um, uh, more maybe severe or serious than the other. Um, one was uh, my, with my uh, wife. She had a job that she had for 17 years. And there came a point in time where she was asked to compromise her faith um, or lose the job. And uh, she lost the job. And let me tell you, it hurt us financially. I mean, it really hurt us. It really hurt us. We took a big financial hit. The second one I could think of is a mocker and scoffer I have in my life. I knew this guy from uh, my pre-Christian days, and he still makes a rare appearance on my social media. And he uh, makes his comments or his uh, passive-aggressive statements on my social media for just from time to time. How are we supposed to respond to people like this? How are we supposed to respond to people who oppose us and persecute us? Well, as our text continues, Paul answers those questions. He, he shifts from talking about loving the church to loving our enemies. His focus begins to change at verse 14, but by verse 17, he has completely made the transition. And you know, if you're a student of the Bible, that Paul was an apostle and he was a church planter. And he spent his entire ministry uh, dealing with persecution, beaten with rods, stranded on islands, all kinds of uh, different things happened to him. The same uh, is with Jesus. And Paul points us to Jesus. He points us to something that the Lord said on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 14. Paul echoes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Scripture says to respond to persecution by blessing our enemies and not cursing them. But it's one thing to refrain from cursing your enemies. It's an entirely different thing to pray for their blessing.
This is otherworldly thinking. This is, this, this is divine love. This is, this is divine kind of thinking. This isn't natural to our thinking. We're definitely going to need to pray for God's grace to restrain ourselves when we're being persecuted. In verse 17, Paul writes, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. When, when you're hurt or offended, you're prone to say, it's payback time. What goes around comes around. Boy, we're about to start having fun now. When someone hurts you, you don't want to get even. You want to get more than even, right? You want to make them sorry that they hurt you. Our, our culture, it talks about sweet revenge, doesn't it? But the Bible says there's nothing sweet about it. You're simply repaying evil with evil. What does verse 17 say? Do what is honorable. Do what is honorable. Act like the Lord. Follow the Lord. The Greek word which is rendered into English as honorable suggests moral purity. When you suffer evil, you should respond in ways that are morally beautiful. In fact, you should respond in peace. Draw your attention to verse 18. If, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You notice that Paul gives a qualification there, though. And that's because it takes more than one person to live in peace. Sometimes peace escapes us because, because of someone else. But so far as it depends on you, live peaceably. Does this mean you must always bite your tongue? You can never stand your ground? Of course not. No one could accuse Jesus of being a doormat. The same is true with the Apostle Paul. This text doesn't nullify your responsibility to keep the ninth commandment. That is, not to bear false witness, to tell the truth. So there's a time you need to stand your ground. But be cautious. Use wisdom. You mustn't be quarrelsome. If possible, live peaceably. But living peaceably can be hard when you're injured. When you've been wounded, you begin to harbor bitterness and resentment. You have to put it out. And if you're unwilling to forgive, temptation can arise to settle the score with people that have hurt you. The Bible forbids this. The Bible forbids this, and it offers a better path. Consider verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It's not your place to retaliate against enemies as a believer. You're not allowed to be a vigilante. 
Instead, you should leave room for God to respond to sin. God is just, and he will avenge evil. In verse 20, Paul continues, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. What are we supposed to do with that phrase? What are we supposed to do with a phrase about burning coals, heaping burning coals on his head? Well, most interpreters believe that burning coals is a metaphor, is a, is a picture for shame. Um, by doing so, you'll, you'll make them feel shame or ashamed of themselves and what they're doing. The idea is that by your godly conduct, um, that your godly conduct will be a witness to them and they'll recognize their own actions. Does that make sense? We're called to love our enemies. That's why verse 21 says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This was the strategy Jesus employed, and you're called to follow him. You remember that Jesus overcame evil by loving God and loving his enemies. If you're, again, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that it teaches that each one of us are born enemies of God. And that's because our forefather, Abraham, fell. And when he fell, it threw us all into sin. And so we're all born with original sin. In fact, the Bible says that we're born dead in trespasses and sins and that the wage of sin is death, both physical death and spiritual death. But God wanted to save a people for himself. So Jesus humbled himself and came down And he did what we couldn't do. He kept the law on behalf of his enemies and he went to the cross to pay for their sins. Romans 5.10 says that Jesus reconciled his people to God while they were still enemies. Jesus overcame evil and achieved the highest good, your redemption. And he offers forgiveness of sins to anybody, to anybody who embraces Jesus as Savior and Lord. As we look at this passage, we see that the scripture calls us to love God, to love the church, and to love those who oppose us. And as we look at this text, and as we look at our lives, what do we see We see that we fail. We fail and we've failed. And as we look at our failure, we look to the cross and we see the one who didn't fail, the one who loved perfectly. And we worship. We praise God that salvation doesn't come through law-keeping, but through faith in Jesus who kept the law on our behalf. As you look at Jesus, you hear him say to you, follow me, follow me. Brothers and sisters, you're called to follow Christ, to love like he loved, 
to love the Lord, to love your fellow believers, even to love your enemies. You're called to love like Christ loves. Amen. Lord, we need your help. You have heard the exhortation right from the beginning, beginning, Lord. Love is a fruit of the Spirit. How are we supposed to love like this, Lord? We need you. We need you to pour out your grace in, uh, in our lives. Lord, we're grateful that you've given us the grace to sit under your word. And Lord, as we are hearing your word and we're hearing in some sense the law, what we're called to do, we would ask that you would keep our minds and our hearts and our eyes firmly fixed on you, the one who has done it all on our behalf. And Lord, we do pray that you would pour out your grace upon us. Lord, give us the desire to walk with you. Give us a heart, a prayerful heart. Lord, help us to love the church, to love your bride, to use our gifts to love her. And Lord, with our enemies, give us grace that we would know how to respond, how to reflect your love and your light to them and to our world. Lord, we need your help. You know all things, Lord. You know our frame. You know how weak we are, how broken we are. Lord, we, we need your grace. We beg. Lord, we beg. Would you, would you pour out your grace and your love upon us and help us, Lord, that we would be like rivers, that it would flow into us and back out and water those around us. Lord, hear our prayers. In Christ's name and for his glory's sake, amen.